You are now listening to Asking for a Friend with Talk Doc, sharing insights through real, honest, and practical ways to improve your communication and relationships. Featuring your hosts, Dr. Pamela Kreiser, Meredith Edwards Nagel, and Taylor Polendo. We've all been there. You know, the moment in conversation where there's an uncomfortable pause and the silence just seems to hang there. Sometimes this silence appears out of nowhere. We don't see it coming. Other times, the long pause follows an unexpected comment or unanswered question. But no matter how they originate, we feel the pressure of silence in conversation. Now, in the United States, some people call this the pregnant pause. This label suggests that the silence will be followed by something significant. And while this newly birthed idea sometimes comes, there are also times when silence seems like punishment. It's just too long. Some researchers from the Netherlands conducted experiments on this very thing about what makes us uncomfortable and what are our breaking points during silence. They argue that when the conversation is easy and coordinated, individuals feel more connected. Alternatively, they argue that when silence appears for too long, it interrupts this flow and can result in the feeling of disconnection. So the question then becomes, at what point is a pause too long, resulting in that disconnection? Well, these researchers found that silence lasting longer than four seconds was the starting point of what was considered negative for most individuals in the United States. But other researchers found that Japanese communicators were more comfortable with pauses, lasting sometimes up to 8.2 seconds. So it may come down to a combination of preferences based on culture. In a different study, Stivers and colleagues researched conversational silence, and they studied 10 different languages, comparing them. In their comparison, most speakers tried to use as little silence as possible, while also attempting not to speak over the other party. So in their study, most subjects had very little delay and very little overlap. Stivers and her team suggest that striking this balance appears to be universal across these 10 languages. Collectively, the research suggests that most interpersonal communicators like to keep silence to a minimum. But are there times when we need silence or can use it strategically? Well, there have been many studies about how silence works in the classroom and how it can yield positive outcomes if it's carefully managed by teachers. For decades, instructional researchers have studied the concept of what they call wait time. Now, wait time is the actual time elapsed between the time when a teacher asks a question and an answer is provided by a student, or perhaps the teacher answers their own question. In her original study, Rowe shockingly measured teachers' typical wait time and found that it was between 0.7 seconds and 1.4 seconds after asking a question before allowing a student response or continuing to talk. And research since that time has shown these averages are still true today. Now, in this line of research, scholars have wondered what happens when teachers wait for more than three seconds for students to answer their questions. Well, here's what they found. The results were very positive. When teachers waited more than three seconds, student responses were longer, more students volunteered answers, there were fewer I don't know answers given, students asked more questions, and they responded to each other more often. But here's what's also interesting. The results were positive for teachers too. When teachers waited more than three seconds, teachers' quality of questions increased, their strategies became more diversified, teachers made fewer errors, and their overall conversations had better structure. Now, whether you're communicating in an interpersonal interaction or communicating in the classroom, silence can be managed and used strategically. So it may come down to understanding your own preferences and culture to find the sweet spot for higher productivity. In the U.S., for example, it appears that responding under three seconds harms elaboration in the classroom. 
but responding later than four seconds could appear awkward in interpersonal conversation. While all of this research is interesting and helpful, it does appear that paying attention to context matters as well. Tannen's research suggests that a manager might announce a decision and assume that workers will speak up if they don't like that decision. But the workers might believe there's no point to speaking up because the boss has already decided. Tannen classifies this type of silence as dangerous. Why? Because this silence is assumed to be agreement when it might be unexpressed disagreement. So here are a few questions. What does your use of silence do in interaction? Are you giving other people time to give input? And how does your use of silence function in certain contexts? This is interesting to me. It definitely made me reflect. I think as a communicator, I could see us wanting to fill silences and not have someone feel awkward or like always oh, trying to make someone comfortable. I, mm -hmm. I feel the weight of like a host as a communicator a lot of times, like I'm hosting a conversation and I want it to be comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. Wait, that was a really good nugget. Uh, you feel the weight of being a host in a, in communication. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good like visual. You feel that way though. Yeah, I completely relate with that. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I don't know, it just came to me. <laughs> like it's a dance, and I don't want my partner to feel uncomfortable, and I don't want to step on their toes. But I feel like that's something I always am annoyed by if I start talking over someone. Mm -hmm. And so I do want to give them space, but then you don't want the awkward pause. So trying to read them and obviously if you don't know them that well or if you don't speak with them often you don't know their rhythm I guess I remember one friend and I it took us a while to figure out our rhythm she would talk just kind of without any pause and I am constantly affirming people with noises little interjections so that they know I'm listening but it always interrupted her flow because she would just tell a story without so it took us a while and we finally figured out she would give me little pauses and I would not interject as much. So I'm not interrupting her story, but it felt like a dance I had to learn with a new partner. Mm. Sure. Well, it was interesting. I thought in the, the studies of the 10 languages that they found that the studies revealed the same thing across the different language use. I thought that was kind of surprising, making it sort of a universal across cultures, honestly. Mm. In Japan, though, 8.2 seconds, that feels like a very long pause. Oh, it's really long because it's yeah. twice our comfort level, right? Yeah. So I found that to be interesting, too. And obviously, that contradicts the other study on some level. I would have to get into more details uh. to know who I thought maybe was right if I wanted to call a winner there. Mm. The quote I heard about the Japanese, they say, the silent man is the best one to listen to. That's a, a saying in Japan. Mm. I didn't know that. I like that. The silent man is the best one to listen to. I'm guessing that that's probably reflective of their collectivist culture. Yeah. And they would be more comfortable inherently because of that. I feel like our culture does not necessarily revere silent type. I think a lot about all the, our screen time and what is it, Meredith, maybe you know how many times a a camera shot like has to change in like a sitcom it's like within second they want the camera shot to change because of our attention span mm. so you don't find very many like single camera use we want constant change i feel like i wonder if our threshold for silence will get shorter over time because we're constantly stimulated in so many areas of our life interesting 
this feels like something that needs to be developed to be comfortable with. You know, you, you mentioned to find your preference versus your own like family culture, your culture, and how that influences your comfortability or ability to be silent or sit with the silence. And I've sort of felt like for me, I thought a lot about like development. I can think back to myself in early college years and it did make me so uncomfortable. Like you said earlier too, that feeling of needing to be a host in conversation. Mm -hmm. I think that the put words to what was going on in my brain back then, where now I still have those moments, I know, but I feel more comfortable with the waiting. Mm. You know, maybe it's like an increase in patience or something. Mm -hmm. Or just even comfortability of knowing yourself. You're comfortable with who you are, so you don't need to fill a void or have a performance. Space filler. Yeah, like space fillers. Like I don't need the space fillers as much as I thought I did before. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like the inch toward finding your own preferences. Are you somebody that needs those space fillers? I hear what you're saying in terms of doing like the, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah. When you're interjecting when someone's talking, I still like that because I feel for me, it's my like level of engagement with someone. I'm not trying to fill a space there. Mm-hmm. I just want them to know I'm paying attention. Yeah. Well, we talked about before how some people find it a negative. Oh, I think it can be for some individuals. Yeah. I love the analogy you gave about the dancing mm-hmm. because it requires that coordination and that's a fun way to think about communication. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me that probably there's work to do with those people around us that we miscoordinate with. Yes. We probably all could name a couple people that just, it doesn't go easily with them. Two left feet. (laughs) Yeah. There are a few that come right to mind. I'm like, I don't understand, but we cannot do the dance. We're not good dancing partners. Yeah. The two things that people are trying to avoid across those 10 languages, talking over each other Mm -hmm. or having too long of a pause, Mm -hmm. both are coordination matters. Right which I find is very interesting. I would alternatively say there are certain individuals that are so easy to dance with in communication that it's seamless. I thought it was really interesting how you said silence can be dangerous because it can be taken as agreement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Assumed agreement. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the powerful person taking it way too far. Yeah. Where they're so insulated in their mind that they're right that they literally think, oh, they must agree with me because they're not speaking up. Right. We have all been in the situation somewhere in that, whether that was when we were children or when we were in a low level position, facing someone in a powerful structure like that, where we have thought to ourselves, I'm not gonna say anything because the hammer will strike. Hmm. And there's no point to doing it. They've already made up their mind or there's no, you know, no benefit for me to speak up or there's no space to do it. So what do you say then to the person in power? What what do you ask of them? It's interesting you say that because I was thinking about that today. I was thinking, what would you do if you had that problem that Tannen described? Yeah. Where you think or you discover that this set of research tells the powerful people one of the keys, which is, do people give you honest feedback? Do you have places where that occurs? And if you can't think of any places where that occurs, you probably have the problem Tannen's talking about. <laughs> it's two things to look at when you're in a position of power. Do people give you honest feedback? And are there spaces or places where they can give that to you? Mm-hmm. I lecture to large groups at times. I understand that some people simply won't share in a large group. Yeah. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how beautiful the topic is. There are some people who will not speak up. Mm-hmm. So you have some of that operating. 
And then you also have maybe the misinterpretation, oh, they must all agree with me. The question would be, if that's not occurring in the large environment or the larger context, is there a smaller place where this occurs? So in other words, when we're in the office and it's just the two of us, you speak freely. Mm -hmm. You have to create that space. Yeah. And you have to do it as a powerful person. Yeah. Because the, the lower power person doesn't have the ability to really create that. That would be silly to expect the lower power person to repair that. Yeah. How do you do that as a professor? Is that like at your end of the semester? Tell me what you thought. <laughs> yeah. I have a couple of things that go on in terms of this topic for me. Now, I get it. They're not going to break their hearts open and tell me their deepest secrets, although sometimes they do. Even in your large lectures? Yes. Oh, wow. But that's not as common. It's, but I do expect them to answer questions or to respond to comments that I make. Decades ago, when I read the research by Mary Bud Rowe on wait time, finding out that teachers aren't waiting, which was basically, that was revolutionary. Yeah, 0.7 seconds, yeah. 0.7 to 1.4. That was crazy. It was startling. And that's so, it's a breath. That's a regular, not even a pausing conversation. It's so short. Yeah. One of the things that I practice in my teaching is waiting. Now, some people could say it's an abuse of power <laughs> because on the first couple of classes, I'm waiting more than four seconds sometimes. Mm -hmm. I know they feel the punishment. And I'm that person that feels like I need to answer you. Yeah. It totally mm -hmm. works on me. Well, I, and I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm doing it to create a context where we can have conversations going forward. Because I won't need a four second to eight second pause all the time, but I might need it some of the time to let them know I'm actually going to wait. Because if you think about the average teacher, let's say you went through a bunch of average teachers that hardly ever wait, you've been technically trained for like 20 years not to answer questions. I was just going to say you're training the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the other way that you can do that is have additional conversations with people in different contexts. So whether that's office hours, if you were on the university campus with me, you would see me do, I arrive 15 minutes early and I walk around and chat with people. You might remember that. I was going to yes, say, I, I remember that. <laughs> I did like that. So I'm checking yeah. in to see what's going on. But part of why, I, why I'm doing that is so that people can hear me. Because if people experience my teaching as just a number, she doesn't care about me, she's not interested in what I have to say, I'm setting the stage for that strangled communication to happen. Mm. So I have to go through some different routes to kind of create an environment that works. Now, does that mean that I have perfect communication? Of course not. But I'm doing things to try to help that. One other advantage I have is that the topics we talk about are like the topics on this podcast. So they're inherently pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did the questions get better? I thought that was so interesting that the teacher's questions got better. Yes. I don't get how that happened. It sounds like the person in power, when they make space for the feedback, it's like they improve themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But how? When this research came out, they started measuring all these classes, doing all these recordings and saying, is this really true? oh my gosh, we aren't waiting for people to answer. And then the, the benchmark became the three second waiting period because it wasn't uncomfortable yet. That's around four or longer, but it was enough to have people perceive that there was space to speak. And so you had the outcomes for the students, which was more engagement. They had less, I don't know, answers. Um, sometimes I think about myself being a fast speaker. I speak at a quick speaking rate. And I think sometimes my pauses could be startling to someone. 
because I'm going through the material so quickly. So I had to train myself to slow down as I enter a question to give someone a couple seconds to think about what their answer is. Yeah. Because I've already figured it all out, right? But it, if you think about it, like, are you being kind to the person if you're just racing and then going, now you? Mm-hmm. That's a good point. It's a little startling. So the student responses were very improved and the, the more engagement across each other. Now, the part you're talking about, Taylor, that was so interesting about those early studies, and since then, there's been a lot of studies, is that the teachers did a better job overall in every aspect as well, asking more diverse questions, asking better questions. There's a couple of studies out about higher level complexity. And one of the things I would say is that if you go slower into the question, no, I'm not talking about overly slow. I'm just saying you pace it such that you're ready to create a space. You give space for more complicated thinking. Mm, okay. I kind of was internalizing this as the teacher or person in power or supervisor or what have you, or parent is because of the space and because of the genuine feedback they're receiving, mm -hmm. there is reduced assumed agreements. Yeah, great. If you're not in a place where you're assuming something, you're actually receiving what's happening. Mm -hmm. So then you can have this bandwidth of a space to come up with better questions or to invite more of that type of interaction because it's benefiting you too. And then ultimately having better communication and more intimacy, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. One thing to say too, that I love about what you just said, Meredith, is you have handed over control a bit to your receivers. Yeah, that's scary. And that's something that is scary. When I'm into groups of a couple hundred up to 500 or thousand or something, you do feel some pressure as a speaker if you're trying to facilitate conversation because you, you have honestly a lot of potential for losing control of the audience. But to the extent that you're committed to a journey with that audience, you can go to amazing places far better than you could engineer with asking a question and then answering your own question. That's like silly if you think about it. And I remember thinking to myself in the first couple of years teaching, I was more like that teacher where I kind of had planned an answer out a little more in my head. So I would think, well, I'm going to ask this, but I know there's three of those and two studies on this, you know, I kind of planned how you're supposed to answer. I felt like it was a, a ceiling on my teaching that I would never become a good teacher until I let go of the control and let the journey go where it needed to go. Mm -hmm. And that I was a member of that party that was going on the journey. I was not steering anymore. And it's a brave place, honestly, because you don't know what will happen, but it's the only place where all kinds of creativity happens. That's got to be hard when you have curriculum or something you're trying to mm -hmm. go through. You are know what you need to teach that mm -hmm. day. And I've seen you through conflict resolution when you taught that class that you're okay if we don't hit everything where you had planned on going. And I, I'm assuming that's you and letting people talk. And Yeah, I had taught a while before I met you two. So that was good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 23 years um, by then. Yeah, but that would, I would think, be very difficult when you need to get through something. If, you know, you have an agenda in a business meeting or, mm -hmm. or teaching and you have what you need to get through. Mm -hmm. I felt like it's like an invitation to learning for the specific class mm -hmm. or the specific employee mm -hmm. or the specific child. It's geared toward them rather than geared toward the person in power. Mm -hmm. It's not always easy to do. It's a balance between trying to get through the points that you want to make. But what I would say about it is it's incredibly insightful to hear someone's honest response. 
But here's what I hear a lot of teachers say. I don't want to give up control in the classroom like that because I'm afraid I won't have something to say. Mm. Oh, it's like an ego thing. Yeah. <laughs> I had to come to the place as a teacher, you know, in my early years of teaching saying, it's fine to say you don't know. And it doesn't mean you're a bad teacher. Yeah. It means that you need to find it out. Totally. And I wonder sometimes in conversations, so let's switch to like dyadic conversation where we have two parties talking and say, do some people keep that high level of control because they're afraid to be seen? Do they keep that high level? I'm not going to allow silence and I'm not going to allow something uncomfortable because I want to control where this goes and how it goes. And if, and if I give you space, what would that mean about me? Yeah. I can relate to that. If I'm with someone that I'm a little uncomfortable about, or I don't really want them to get an intimate look at me, I will just ask a lot of questions or steer the conversation into kind of more shallow areas because I don't want to really have it turn around and reflect on me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or even I could take it back to what you were saying earlier with that, like the hosting conversation, Mm -hmm. wanting to make sure you don't offend someone. So you like over talk or don't let space for that because you're trying so hard to control that you don't do something wrong Mm -hmm. and you don't want to leave space for the fact that maybe you could be. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard to learn that. Yeah. With the teaching example, I had to just get to a place where I thought about it and said, if you don't know the answer, so what? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Nothing will happen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean I'm bad. It doesn't mean I'm bad at teaching. It doesn't mean I didn't prepare or whatever. And I find myself at times saying, I don't know, I'll get back to you. Yeah. Or I haven't thought about that idea. I haven't found from experience that people say, Ooh, see bad teacher. I think people value that more than me faking an answer. Yes. I was thinking personally and professionally, I feel with clients I work with my silence could be too much of like a power over Mm -hmm. and it would have to be like a really good rapport with someone to use something like that. Mm -hmm. That makes sense with the research that people perceive it as punishment, especially if you're in a position of power. Yeah. 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 I feel like it could come across like that. Culture plays plays a huge part too. Mm -hmm. Personally, I feel that when I was younger and a parent, like my mother would ask me a question, I would want to answer really fast. And now when I'm older, I feel that my silence is showing some form of respect for the question to pause and think about it. Definitely. Yeah. With my younger sister, am I pausing to really take in what she's saying or to think about the question she's asking if she's asking for advice instead of just like talking at her? Mm-hmm. One of the hallmarks of good communicators is their adaptability. Mm-hmm. So when we say that people are highly skilled in communication, they're skilled when they can adapt to one person differently than to another or to one situation mm-hmm. to another. And to the extent that we use the same speed, offer no silences or whatever we're doing, you know, trying to get rid of the silences, that doesn't demonstrate the adaptability that we would say is a hallmark of a good communicator. Hmm. And so one thing that I'm thinking about is this is a great reminder that this is also an area to be adaptable in. So you might have somebody like a client of yours, for example, who needs extra second or two to answer. They just need it. Mm -hmm. 
for whatever reason. Good point. Because the information's upsetting, because they haven't thought about it, whatever. Yeah. And the adaptable communicator will notice that change in that context change and adapt to it. The thing we wouldn't want to do is have the same patterns across every relationship because that demonstrates no adaptability. I had a mediation recently when you mentioned culture. I was doing a group mediation. So I had a couple of parties on each side and they're not from our culture. They were more perceived by me to be from collectivist cultures. <laughs> and what was interesting is when I asked a question to either party, they were silent for a long period of time. And so what I ended up doing was doing private meetings with them. And what I learned in the private meetings was that culturally they didn't want to say what their proposed solutions were in front of the other party because they didn't like how that appeared. Mm. And so the silence was feedback to me. I ended up having to, to do what we call shuttling, which is where we put the parties in separate rooms and just go back and forth. And I guess I got the, I was the one punished, right? Because I had to go run around. <laughs> um, but I found it interesting because they said, you know, we would never answer that directly. The question you asked in front of that other party culturally, that we would never do that. Mm. And we got a deal, but it took, you know, an extra 10,000 steps to get it. <laughs> <laughs> this made me think about perception checking. Mm-hmm. That you would couple this with that long pause and allow them space. Mm-hmm to kind of correct you or, oh, actually it was this. Mm -hmm. It seems like they go hand in hand really well as a way to get more information. Mm -hmm. I think so, but I would say the adaptability is crucial. Mm -hmm. So what I'm gonna throw in here, and this is for parents of multiple children now, what works with one child doesn't work the same with another child. Mm -hmm. And so part of that adaptability goes across even children in your own home. So one of the mistakes that some people make is believing we're all in one home, so everyone should communicate the same way. <laughs> That's not how it goes, actually. Every person experiences the home environment differently. And because of that, with their combined genetics and additional experiences, they don't see the same thing, even in the same interaction. I love that pairing of the perception check, and I would also be watching to see what happens with that particular child. And I know certain children that would respond really well to that and probably wouldn't even wait a second before responding. <laughs> and maybe another child who wouldn't respond to that and might even dislike the activity. Hmm. So then it's just at the end of the day, not being right. At the end of the day, it's about what works. Right. So then we do a different strategy. And this is even reminding me of earlier conversations and episodes we've had about studying well the people that you love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Studying those people to know how helpful is your silence to them or how detrimental is it? Well, I think the research collectively shows we're trying not to have it. Right? Yeah, we're avoiding it. We're, we're trying not to have silence occur because we don't like it. And as soon as you get to four or five seconds, we're working hard to get out of that situation. And so I love what you're saying because we might have a partner who prefers that more than we prefer it. Yeah, I do. It's not a bad thing, but I'm always like, I want to know what's going on up there. <laughs> you're like, it's been three seconds. Let's go. <laughs> do you feel not heard or not listened to when you are hearing silence? Like they weren't no. paying attention maybe? No. No, no. Sometimes I actually do. I think I notice I'll fill in space with like, so what are you thinking? And it's like, well, I'm thinking to answer. Like, <laughs> give me a second. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's, I think that was early on in our relationship. I've learned that now and it's, it's just 
I actually appreciate that he takes the time to think before he speaks. It's nice. Yeah. It's kind of revolutionary, actually. (laughs) That's a keeper. I think sometimes when you and I have certainty about our topic or have made up our mind about something Mm. and someone else is being hit with a topic that they maybe haven't done much thinking about or don't have formed opinions, I think it's tough on them to take away their silence because I've already done my thinking. So I'm asking you a question you didn't answer. So I'm going to fill it in. (laughs) And that's, that's exactly what a bad teacher would do too. Yeah. So are we going to dive into our TC4Gs or what? Trade my comfort for growth. Okay. So I think something I've been working on is not always feeling the need to share my opinion with every conversation, asking questions and hearing people and just kind of letting that sit and settle for a minute. I think this kind of couples with it a little bit, unless someone asks a question, being okay with the conversation, not always needing them to know what I think about something. Yeah. For me, I need to slow down always. That's my number one in this space. I need to slow down my rate of speaking and I need to let the pauses happen and let other people dictate the pace, not just me. Mm. Okay, well, I don't even need one because you said the one that I need. <laughs> I'm taking what you just said, everything. I need to slow down. Oh, you're stealing. You're hijacking my TC4G. <laughs> hijacking. She's such a cheater. The slow down has to be the hugest professional tool I need in my life. Slow down. I always want to be like, produce, produce, hurry up, get it done, get this done. But slowing down as I'm learning from obviously the research and waiting and slowing down is actually more beneficial to my learning anyway, or to my productivity. Well, part of what I want to work on is allowing other people to dictate the pace because that would demonstrate great adaptability on my part. Mm. And that's something I want as a communicator. I want to be adaptable. So you don't want to always be the dictator of the pacing so that everyone has to follow your rules, your micro rules of the conversation. Give them a chance to control how fast we're talking, Mm -hmm. how quickly answers are happening and I do the dance a little better, honestly. As much as we collectively try to reduce silence, today we've heard some ways that silence can be useful and even effective in our communication. From the classroom to our close relationships, it presents an adaptability challenge, something we need to actively consider and manage. As we approach the holidays, we have an important announcement. Next month, we will be kicking off our new six-part holiday series called Family Survival Kit for the Holidays. Our first episode will be published on November 16th, and it will be available on YouTube in video format as well as in our usual audio podcast format. We hope you will check it out and join us as you prepare your holidays, but also your communication with your family. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Please remember to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. And thank you for listening to Asking for a Friend. Let us know what you thought of the episode. Our email is hello at afafpodcast.com. This show is for educational purposes only and is copyrighted. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Thanks for listening to Asking for a Friend with Talk Talk.